0: I haven't slept since I got here actually. I had these people up above me in a room the first night I was here, and it was like they were jumping up and down on the floor or something, a bunch of guys partying all night. So I kind of tossed and turned and tossed and turned all night. But that's okay, that's all right. Can you hear okay? Does it sound uh, weird out there? It sounds like I'm talking in a barrel up here, Tom. (laughs) Just put the micro compressor on And then it should be fine Alright, hey, there's a couple things here I want to uh, mention this morning Let's see How many of you got a chance to go and reflect This morning or last night You took some time to go reflect Raise your hand really high I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see that you took some time to reflect. It's always good to reflect, plus it gives you a chance to separate the good from the bad. Um, I want to explain something last night uh, that I mentioned that I didn't mean it the way it sounded at all. I went back to my room and laid in bed and thought about it all night. You ever wonder if I think about the things I say? Yeah, I lay there and think about them all night. I couldn't wait to get to this meeting to somehow try to straighten it out, if that's possible. In fact, I was half tempted just to take the tape and cut the ribbon and burn the thing. But anyway, I do not hate what we're doing at Evergreen. And I want to make that really clear, especially if this is being taped, and then someone hears the first tape, and then they tape this. And upon reflection, I realized that could put some of the other guys in a real bad light. It's not what I meant at all. We, I'm very encouraged, in fact, and very proud of what we're doing at the weekend service. It's done very deliberately. It's done on purpose. It's been done through a lot of prayer and seeking the Lord on how we could create an environment that people would even want to learn about the Lord. it's just that I like doing conferences even more and I should have said it that way, I didn't say it that way but I do not hate what we're doing at Evergreen many of you are in this room because of what's going on there on the weekend service and it was intended to be an introductory step for people and that's what it will continue to be and I'm very proud of that and very encouraged by it so I I just wanted to make sure that was very, very clear But I should say that I certainly, certainly, certainly love doing conferences because it gives you the opportunity to go so much deeper in. Most of the people on Sunday morning aren't ready for that anyway. It takes a process. Someone came up to me this morning and said, you know, I've been coming to Evergreen for three years and this is the first conference I came to. I'm finally taking a bigger step. Well, that's what it's about. You know, we're more than willing, and God is more than willing to take people where they're at and help them grow on this incremental stairway, you know. But eventually, somewhere along the line, just like Jesus did, you have to turn to the crowds, you have to turn to the people that are coming and lay it on the line and tell them the message of discipleship. Now, sometimes it's not very popular. For example, when Jesus turned to the crowds and He said, Unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, yes even your own life, you're not worthy of me. To some that may have seemed very harsh, very abrasive, very dishonoring. Not if you understood what Jesus meant. Sometimes when we start talking about some of the things God wants to do in our life, things seem a little heavy, they seem maybe a little abrasive. Sometimes we have to you got to remember, you know that the flesh generally just has surrounded our heart often and surrounded our mind so that it sometimes takes things to get through to us. So, this thing going to keep doing that, do you think? Should I lower this thing? Or raise it? Huh? Raise it? Okay, we'll try raise it. See what happens. The other thing that I wanted all of you to know is that uh, how thankful I am to be here with all of you single men and women. God has done some extraordinary things with this singles group. You know, I think it's the win. You hear the fans? Just cut the fans. Thank you very much. See, so you got to solve them problems. was my hot air, let me tell you. It's those right there. Anyway. It has just been such an encouragement for me to watch what God has done with this group of singles. You know, that started—I'll never forget—we started New Life Professionals almost ten years ago. It was Doug and I, and Lonnie Van Dyke, and Joan, and Linda Carr, and, and a few other people. Heidi, hi. Now Heidi Van Dyke, and or that's Heidi Van Dyke. Now it was Heidi, it's Heidi Anfinson. Now, and we'd meet at Versailles Apartments, ten or fifteen of us in the party room. Praying that God would grow this group. Praying for people to come around. Praying for single men and women. And and to see what God has done and to see how God has used Doug in the life of this group and used Andy and Randy in the life of this group and many others of you. Just, I, I can't tell you, it's one of the things I'm proudest about is the single men and women at Evergreen and their commitment. I'm also proud extremely proud of you that this place is not a meat market like quite frankly so many Christian single groups are I am so thankful to God for your commitment and your love for Christ your love for one another your desire to grow in your faith your desire to follow God I I love working with single people A lot of the conferences I do, you know, they're a mixture now, but when I first started, they were college students, they were singles. There's still a lot of single and college conferences that I go do. I believe uh, that among the people that have the most potential, it's quite often the singles. and Young single men and women or older single men and women who don't have their lives all tied down, that are available to God. That are available to God. And I believe that you have tremendous potential. And that God wants to do some extraordinary things with your lives. Many of the men and women throughout the Bible that God used were single when God called them. Paul remained single his entire life. David was single when God started using him. Joseph was single when God started using him. Daniel was single when God started using him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were single. When God started using them. Doesn't mean God can't use people when they're married. But it does get very challenging if a person has been married for some time, has a family, then they get saved. The process often is much slower. So you are in a wonderful, wonderful situation for God to do something with your life. And I, and I am praying, and I know that Doug has been praying, Andy has been praying, Randy and the other leaders of the singles group here have been praying that God would speak to your heart and that you would avail yourself to God for God to use you. For God to use you. There's no greater privilege in the world, you know, than to have God use you. Than to be fitting into the scheme that God has for your life. To have God do something extraordinary through you. To have Him use you to touch the life of another person. Once you get a taste of that, nothing else will ever do. And I can tell you that from experience. When you have for the first time God use you in the life of one other person. And the course of their life changes because of what God did through you. Because of something you said, something you did, or a combination of the two you'll come to the conclusion, I don't want anything else. Nothing else comes close to what it's like, the sense of fulfillment, to be right there in the the hand of God and knowing God is working through me. God is speaking through me. It's extraordinary. So I want to talk to you this morning about walking worthy in our lives and living in a manner that's worthy of the calling we receive. Last night we talked an awful lot about this extraordinary calling that God has given us. I don't know, you know, I try in my own frail way to somehow get across to us how extraordinary this calling is. You and I are sons of God. Put another way, you are as much a son of God as the son of God. When the father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, God says of you, you are my beloved sons in whom I am well pleased, sons and daughters of God. That's what you are. You are God's children with full rights of sonship as Jesus himself. He is your brother. You are his brother and he is yours. Your family with God. Your kings, your priests, your God's chosen witnesses. I don't know if you've ever fantasized about spiritual things before. I, I have, and I thought to myself, what it would have been like to have been one of the twelve. Have you ever thought about that before? What it would have been like to have been one of the twelve disciples. Handpicked by Jesus Himself. The sense of mission, the sense of value, the sense of significance. That's what you are. Now, if you decide not to believe that, I can't do anything about that. That's why I talk sometimes the way I do. I'm trying to do something about it. I'm trying to help you see what it is that God's called you to. I'm trying to help you grasp the significance of what God has for you and I to do. The world needs to be reached as desperately as it did in Paul's day, and it consumed Paul. He knew that was his calling, that was his mission in life. And that's our mission in life to allow God to supernaturally live through us with his power and allow his glory to shine out through us to this world and to take our stand for righteousness for truth and for peace and for love and for the things of God but no one will take us serious unless we're living worthy of the kingdom I had a young man come up to me last night and he said you know Mark you know the, there may be various opinions on this I don't know that uh, everyone would feel the same way that's fine but he said you know mark it's interesting when you speak you know when you come here you 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 just even say these things because you have the respect of these people it just it just comes out different than if if we had someone else come here and say it if i said it it just comes out different well part of that's because you know i've been i helped father this church with Brent, and then now with these other men, and I've been around you for ten years, and you've had the opportunity, well, some of you, we've not been around each other ten years, but I've been around here that long, and you've had the opportunity to know this individual. But I want you to imagine for a moment that um, that for some reason I had injured that respect, You know, imagine if the person speaking to you today never kept their word. Or imagine if the person speaking to you, you know, um, vacillated in their convictions back and forth. Or imagine for a moment that the person had an affair. All of a sudden, you know, it changes the way you view them. The way you live your life is extremely important. The way you carry yourself is extremely important. God's credibility is at stake with your life. That's the point. The credibility of our message is no more important than the credibility of the messenger. And the message takes on greater meaning When people can see that this messenger, you, this individual, is of exceptional character, it is of of exceptional righteousness, and is of exceptional love. That does not mean, again, like I said the other night, that we don't make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. Paul made mistakes. David made mistakes, Peter made mistakes, and he got up and he kept moving forward, but at the same time, they realized the way we live our life is very, very important. So let's bow our heads for a moment, pray, and then we'll just get into this this morning. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, we thank you for your faithfulness, we thank you for your goodness. We ask you, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would speak to us. We ask you, Lord, that your word would bless our soul and that, God, you'd raise the, the level of our game. Individual, I pray you'd raise the level of my game. Lord, I, all the things that I'm sharing this weekend, I want in a greater way in, my, in myself. I want to walk, Lord, more worthy of You. It's a quest, a lifelong quest that we're on. Because Christ's likeness has not yet been achieved in me. I want to be more like You. I want to grow in wisdom and stature and judgment. In humility. In graciousness. In wisdom. I want to grow, Lord, in righteousness in my life. I want to grow in love. I want to grow in unity. I want to grow to be more worthy of you than today. And I just ask you, Lord, you don't in our hearts this morning speak to us. Please give us a tender heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, if you'd turn there. Start with verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays this quite often. He prays for the believers that they would have a knowledge of God's will. And we pray this for you as pastors. Your leaders pray this for you. God, fill these saints with the knowledge of your will. Help them to know what it is that you want them to do. Paul prays in Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you might know the hope of your calling, the glorious riches of His inheritance in the saints, and how incredibly great is His power in us who believe. See, you've got to be open. Your eyes got to be open. You've got to grasp, you've got to understand what's really going on and what God wants to do in your life. And then he says, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. You'd never be able to live a life worthy of the Lord if you didn't understand His will. If you didn't understand your calling. You'd never grasp it. You'd never know what it meant. And this is what Paul's praying. Paul's praying. We want you to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please Him in every way. And then go on and see what he says. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I, uh, a person came up to me this morning and said, You know, Mark, what I struggle with you were talking last night about walking worthy is I just don't feel worthy to even walk worthy. And I shared this with them and I want to share this with you this morning. You didn't qualify yourself to be in these Olympic Games of God, He qualified you. He qualified you. That's what grace is. He made you worthy. Now let's live up to how He made us. And we don't have to do it in our own power. I'll share on that Sunday morning. He's given us His power to do it. But we must make the choice to do it. And we must pursue it. And we must go after it. And we must set our heart with the determination that I'm going to walk in the ways of God. But God has already qualified you to share in this inheritance What does it mean to walk worthy of our calling or live worthy of God? I'm going to share this with you. You may or may not be able to write this down because it's kind of long, but you can try. What does it mean to walk worthy of our calling? It means that God wants us to live up to what He called us to be in Christ. To live our lives in a God-honoring fashion. To live righteously and holy in our relationships, in our character, in our morality, and in our speech. To show forth Christ-likeness in all we say and do. To live as children of light rather than children of the dark. Our behavior and our decisions should be godly and upright. It means we choose to live our lives in obedience to God. I want to read that again. Living worthy of our calling means that God wants us to live up to what He called us to be in Christ. To live our lives in a God-honoring fashion. To live righteously and holy in our relationships, in our character, in our morality, and in our speech. To show forth Christ's likeness in all we say and do. To live as children of light rather than children of the dark. Our behavior and our decisions should be godly and upright. It means we choose to live our lives in obedience to God. You know, one of the saddest stories that I heard this week, maybe that I've heard in a long, long time, it's, it's so typical, but just to show you the damage that is done, is the story about Ellen Hedge, Ellen DeGeneres' new girlfriend, the story of Her father. Did you hear the story? Fundamentalist Baptist minister. Obviously, she was raised within the sound of the gospel. Except her father lived a double life. He was a closeted homosexual most of his life and died of AIDS. I want to ask you what do you think that would do to you? If you'd grown up in that environment, on the one hand, having someone, a spouse, Righteousness, God, justice, holiness. And on the other hand, they live a perverted lifestyle and then they die. That would really mess you up. Wouldn't it? It have a real impact on your thinking. It really screw up what you think about God. It certainly destroys the credibility of the message, does it not? God doesn't want us living double lives, brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to be talking about this throughout this whole weekend. God does not want us living double lives. You know, we get around our Christian friends, we get around Evergreen, we get in our small group, and we're Mr. or Miss Holy. You know, we, got, we just got a verse. We got something to say. We got something to share. But then when we get away, and we get with our families, or we get with our roommates, or we get on the job, or we live a different life. God wants us to be true through and through that's what purity means it means unadulterated it means not mixed with other foreign materials it means you're pure Christian through and through and God wants us to be who he made us to be in private and in public now there's always a struggle with the flesh It's always God's grace. You know, you've heard me talk a lot about God's grace. I'm just going to be honest with you right now. You're not going to hear much about that this weekend. You've got to remember something about all of our teachings. You've got to put them all together to gain the balance. I can't always do that in one five-hour segment. I want to talk to you this weekend about being holy men and women. About pursuing what God wants us to pursue. Basically, living worthy means... Let's get serious about righteous and obedient living. Let's get serious about righteous and obedient living. You know, being a pastor, you know, you hear a lot of different things. Sometimes you hear rumors. Sometimes you check the rumors out and find out they're true. I was visiting with someone recently who was wanting to get involved in one of the small group uh, activities in in the church. And I I suggested, why don't you get with the so-and-so? Individuals. They said, well, you know, I'm not real comfortable there. I said, well, how come? I said, well, because, you know, they've made it their habit on Friday nights after the service to go to a bar. And talk and have fellowship. And I'm just done with that kind of thing, you know. I just don't think it's a good thing. And I said, you know what, I don't think it's a good thing either. And I'll make sure I address that. God called us to a different life, brothers and sisters. Now, there's a big difference between champs and a bar and a dance club. You know, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. This particular person was talking about the dance clubs, the bars, and that's happened before, and I just want you to know that's just inappropriate for God's holy people. That's just not an appropriate place for God's people to hang out. Come on, let me show you this from the Bible. Some of you are going, oh, Mark's a gray area. So it turned to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because He has has suffered in His body, is done with sin. As a result, He does not live the rest of His earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And let's just be real honest... That's what's going on at the club, dance club. Lust, drunkenness, debauchery, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. What does that mean? It means they think it's weird that you don't go to the same places. And they make fun of you. How are you ever going to get married if you don't go meet girls? I mean, that's where you meet them. No, i got better things to do in my life. They keep abuse. Don't you ever have any fun? Don't you ever want to party? Hey, I spent enough time in the past doing what you pagans do. No, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. My life's different. Christ changed my life. I don't need that anymore. If you come to Christ, you wouldn't need it anymore either. See? We're not supposed to jump into the flood of dissipation. Now, does that mean, as some of you have heard me say before, that we don't make friends with lost people? No, that's not what it doesn't mean. But I'm very careful where I choose to go. And I'm, I, and I'm pretty cautious what I choose to, to put myself, what situation I choose to put myself in. And I try to always have options when I'm working with a lost person so I can throw out other options that they might like to do that wouldn't put, put us in such a vile situation. And that's with lost people. But with Christians, with Christians... I never go hang out in those kind of places. And I've never been to a dance club as it is. As a Christian. And I might dance at somebody's wedding occasion but even now I don't do that anymore because people misconstrue it and there's so much writing on my reputation that I just refrain. I just refrain. I don't think it's wrong to dance. I think that is a gray area. But I don't think getting 12, 15 Christians after church, oh, let's all go down to, you know, this club, or I don't even know the names of them. Let's just go hang out. Why? Are are you going to go hand out tracts? You're going to stand outside the door and talk to people as they come? Out, barely able to walk? I mean, what are you going to do? Well, I'll get into that more later. Let's go back to Ephesians. God wants us to get serious about being righteous and about being obedient. Okay, and that's my point. Ephesians chapter four and verse one: As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you receive. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now. I've, I've broken this down, I'm sure there are more, but I've broken this down this weekend in three areas that God wants us to walk worthy in. God wants us to walk worthy in our character and our speech. God wants us to walk worthy in our relationships. That'll be after this session. And tonight, God wants us to walk worthy in our morality, holiness, and purity. And tomorrow, we're going to talk about how. How we can achieve those things, all right? So this morning, what I want to talk to you about is God wants us to walk worthy in our character, in our speech. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Philippians 2 and verse 1. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. First major issue God wants in our character is the quality of humility. The quality of humility. That shows itself, A, in a brokenness before God. A brokenness before God. If you go to Isaiah chapter, I think it's chapter 66. We'll start there anyway. Verse 2. Isaiah 66, 2. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I respect. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Micah says, the book of Micah, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God requires humility. And if you're going to walk worthy of the Lord, then we need to be people who are humble, who have a tender heart, who are broken before God, who have a dependence upon God we have a proper perspective of who we are and who we aren't and that humility is shown in our relationship to god and it's shown in our relationship towards others it's measured both ways we aren't all caught up with ourselves we realize the world doesn't revolve around us we're willing in fact to play second fiddle if that's what God deems necessary. Our desire is, Lord, I pray that others would increase and I might decrease. Lord, I want you to increase in my life and I want to decrease. So first of all, a humble person is a person who's broken before God. They have a deep respect for God and a deep dependence upon God. They are God-dependent not self-dependent, or another way to put it, B is God-reliant, not self-reliant. They are God-reliant. And their God-reliance is shown through their reflection upon God's Word, their meditation upon God's Word, the value that they have towards God's Word. Isn't that what Isaiah 66 says? It says, To this one I will look, to him who is contrite, and trembles at my word. We have a sense of awe. You know, Philippians says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Another version, I like it better, says continue to work out your trembling with a deep sense of awe and responsibility. This isn't a joke. This isn't a game. This is a nice little hobby. God has called you. The God of the universe. The God who made you. He wants us to walk worthy and he's got something to say to you. And it's right here in his word. And you'll never know it if you're not in it. So one of the first ways I see a person and the humility of their life is in the value that they put on God's word personally. It's something I've, I've seen, a quality I've seen in my wife ever since I've known her. Every day... I don't know if she ever misses a day, even I miss days, once in a while, to read. I, I don't miss a day to meditate, but there's days I miss to read. Every day, she starts her day and she's reading her Bible and then she's writing down in her journal. And before I came up her, she gave me three new verses to remind me of when I came here for this conference. To speak to my heart promises for me to claim in prayers that she was praying for this conference. She's humble, and God has given her a lot of grace. And God gives grace to the humble. That's one one of the ways you'll know a person's real humility in their life. I've said this before to you ladies, but I'll say it again. The scariest thing in the world is to fall in love with a proud man. Last thing in the world you ever want is to join your life with an arrogant man. A self-sufficient man. A guy who doesn't really, has not shown over time, a habit of fearing God. That's a scary man. Capable of almost anything. Certainly capable of just deciding, ah, let's just go. I'll figure life out as we go. You want to make sure that in, in your future... Men, I'd say the same thing to you. You, Towards the ladies, you want to make sure that you, you would ever join your life with a person whose knee is bowed to the king. Whose life is subservient to the king. And his allegiance or her allegiance is to the king. And every day, they want to meditate on that which the king wants and what the king desires. Christianity is not a democracy. It is a kingdom ruled by a king. Your Lord, your Savior, Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Doesn't that make any sense to us? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Wait a minute, excuse me, I I misunderstand here. He's your Lord and Savior, and why aren't you doing what he said? Jesus himself said, and this is pretty heavy, he said many, many will come to me on that day of judgment and say, but Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Lord, we were doing this for you. Lord, we were doing that for you and Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Yeah, you know who the Lord is. Who's walking in the light. 1 John basically tells us two ways to know a person's a believer. Number one, They walk in the light, not in the darkness. What that means, practically speaking, is not that they're sinlessly perfect. It means that their habit of life is to walk in righteousness. That's their pursuit. Doesn't mean they don't fall. Doesn't mean they don't fail. That would be inconsistent with the entire Bible. Okay? The second measure of whether a person's a believer is they love the brethren. You ever met people who say they're a Christian, and they just never want to hang around other Christians? They never really want to be in fellowship? There's one of two things going on. Either they're living a double life, there really is a lot of sin in their life, a lot of compromised areas in their life, and it's very convicting for them to be around other believers, they don't want to do it. So you need to deal with them in that manner. Or number two, they're a heathen, saying that they're saved, and they need to share the gospel with them. But it's very important that you realize. I remember our Christianity doesn't always fit our uh, idealistic view of of, uh, American democracy. Christianity isn't a democracy. It's ruled by a king. The king gives orders. And the king expects those orders carried out in light of everything he's done for you in the realm. See? And one day you're going to rule with him. And one day you're going to be with him for all eternity. But in the meantime... Or to be his servants. C. Third area, or the C area, however you want to do this. I always get mixed up in these outlines. <laughs> anyway, third area of humility, if you want to call it that way, is a teachableness. I always know a humble person by their hunger to learn. Now, it doesn't mean they don't have opinions. It doesn't mean they don't share them, and they aren't passionate, or they don't have deep convictions. But one thing's definitely true about them. They're teachable. There's a yearning to learn. They want to know more. They have an open heart to learn from God and to learn from others. And to hear what God has to say. They want to learn. They want to learn. There an- another, uh, another almost synonym of this would be they're cooperative. You know, when you work with them, they're a a team player. They may have ideas, but they're willing to listen to other people. Their humility is shown in that manner. D, they're a willing servant of others. This is a humble person. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the greatest of all will be the servant of all. That's how humility is really shown. Jesus' humility was shown in that he became a servant. He was god he became a servant your humility will be shown in that you are a son a daughter of God you are a king you are a royal priest but you decide to be a servant both to the saved and to the lost and you serve them just like your master like your savior did he set you an example to follow E is you have an obedient heart an obedient heart. The Bible says in Philippians that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's another way we see humility. Humility is shown in obedience. Humility is shown in our submission to God. Listen, my flesh cries out just like yours does. We all have that in common. We all have the same flesh and it screams out. Pamper me. I want my own way. I want to do what I want to do. But our humility is shown when we turn a deaf ear to the flesh and we make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust, but instead we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and in humility... We do that which is appropriate and what God will want us to do, whether we feel like it or not. We are not people who live by our feelings, but we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's what it means, we walk by faith. Faith is also an outward expression of humility. Bible says in Habakkuk, but as for the soul of the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but my righteous one shall live by faith. You see, there in Habakkuk, we have faith and arrogance contrasted. You would think it would be arrogance and humility, but it's arrogance and faith, because faith is an outward expression of inward humility. Humility, see. In humility, we realize, you know what, Lord? I'm not you. I'm not God. I do not even know what's going to happen one hour from now, let alone... 50 years from now I've never spoken to the dust and had it become a man I never spoke to nothing and had the sun appear I don't hold the whole world in the palm of my hand the nations aren't like a drop in the bucket to me the nations are overwhelming so you know what Lord in humility I just realized that if this is what you tell me to do in my relationship towards this person, you know, Lord, I don't care whether I feel like it or not. You know what's best for me. You know what's best for the world. And in faith, well, I'm going to do it. That's the Christian life. I just shared with you in just a few brief moments, that's the entire Christian life. Just putting one foot forward in front of the other on faith on faith You know, whenever I think of faith, I think of um, um, Harrison Ford's last Indiana Jones movie. I think it was the third, the Holy Grail movie. You know, when him and Sean Connery is his dad, and they're going after the, the cup of Christ. And he gets in that cave, and he passes through this massive gauntlet. You know, and he remembers the secret ancient holy writings of, in the book that tells you how to get to the Holy Grail and, he's, and he's, he gets out and he almost falls over the cliff and he steps back and he keeps meditating on the Word pretend for a moment that it was really the Holy Word of God he keeps meditating on it and meditating on it and meditating on it and finally realizes I'm going to have to go by faith now to get to the Grail And he steps out, you know, and I think the verse was, I don't remember right, I think it was, they should walk by faith, but I don't remember what, I don't remember what it was, I haven't seen the movie in probably ten years, or eight, or however many it was. And, and finally he steps out, and just as he steps out, this giant platform appears that was there the whole time, and he walks across. And then, of course, only the righteous can drink from the grail, you know, and if you get the wrong one, you die, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, just a stupid movie, but it illustrates <laughs> it illustrates some very real truths, doesn't it? You know what uh, the Lord told the uh, the priest in the Old Testament, when they were going to cross the river Jordan, they had the, the Ark of the Covenant, and God told Joshua, now cross the Jordan. And the Bible says the Jordan was in its flood stages. Now, if you've ever been near a flood or seen pictures of it, it's a very overwhelming, scary thing. Flood waters, they're, they're, they're just... They're moving at um, an unbelievable rate of speed and power and current. They can just sweep you off your feet, suck you under, and kill you. And God told the priest, they were carrying the ark. Now, when you're carrying something, you even lose your balance a little more easily. And and he told the priest, you can find this in the book of Joshua, that when the soles of their feet touch the water, then I'll part the water. Now, if you're like me, like any other Christian, you know what we're going to do, don't you? We're going to walk up with our ark and go, Okay, Lord, I'm right on the sand. All right, it's okay now, you go ahead and part it. Okay, Lord, this water is moving very fast. And if I put my foot in, it goes down, I could be washed away, Lord. And I have your ark, Lord, and it's really precious to you, so, uh, you know. Lord, just do what you did with Moses, would you? Just part the water from the side. But that's not what God intended to do in their situation. Moses was different. And so the soles of their feet touched the water, and instantly, it's the second time, God parted the water in the Bible. And it spread completely apart and stood on one end. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like? To go walking through these big walls of water, you know? And at any moment, you know what happened to Pharaoh and his army. You're thinking, oh my gosh, God, you got these walls up, because if they come down, we're going to be squished. They walk through That's the walk in some 23 million years from now. And you still won't come up with the internal courage by your own feelings to do what God wants you to do. It's going to have to be because you know what, God? You're God and you said it and you keep your word and you keep your promises and you've told me I have the power to do it and so in faith I'm going to believe it and I step out and then, then you start to see God work. How many of you have experienced that before? Raise your hand. I want to get some witnesses to this. Raise your hand really high. Now and I want you to stand up. Stand up. Have you seen that happen before? You stand up. Alright? Stand up. And I want you to look around the room at each other and I want you to realize that there are hundreds of other people in this room who have stepped out and trust God and they can share with you how to do it. I'm not the only one. They, you can sit back down. God works when you step out in faith. God works when you trust Him. God, And you ought to encourage one another. That's the big reason we get together, one of them, on a regular basis, is to encourage each other in our common faith. We rub off on each other. And then, the letter F. Under number one, walking in humility. Oh, just bear with my weak and frailty, will you? A gentle and meek spirit. Walking worthy of the Lord, a person has a gentle and meek spirit. It would mean they're approachable, they're tender-hearted. The word meek is a very powerful word. It means enduring injury with great patience and without resentment. Enduring injury with great patience... Now, without resentment. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. You want to win the win the world for Jesus Christ? Do you want to conquer it? Then it, it will require... The quality of meekness. Now, also the quality of courage and a whole lot of other things, but meekness. In other words, you can't take things personal from people. You can't get injured every time someone says or does something against you. You're going to get a lot of criticism. Jesus got a lot of criticism. A lot of flack. But he didn't retaliate. That's the key there to a meek person. They don't retaliate. If Jesus would have retaliated, it would have ruined everything. You retaliate, it's going to ruin things. Meek people don't retaliate. They respond with a blessing instead. Instead of giving evil for evil, they give a blessing back. Now inside, they may be feeling like a volcano waiting to spew. I'm not saying that meek people don't hurt. I'm not saying that meek people don't get grieved. I'm not saying that a meek individual doesn't feel pain. They do, but they endure it with patience and without resentment, without lashing back. God's got to develop that quality in our life, doesn't he? We have to know it's even a quality he'd want us to develop. Those are some of the ways that we walk worthy in our character before God. Second area of character I want to talk about in Titus chapter 2. Go to Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. This is a very uh, interesting passage in the Bible. You can read it sometime on your own over the whole passage. The older women, it says in verse 3, are to teach the younger women. Be an example them, to help train them. To love their husbands, that would apply if you were married. To love their children, that would apply if you had children. This would apply to either one. To be self-controlled and pure. To be busy at home, that would apply if you were married. To be kind, that applies to either To be subject to their own husband, that would apply if you were married, so that no one will malign the Word of God. That applies either way. The whole point is so that people wouldn't malign God, but instead they take God seriously. Then let's go on, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Teach the young men to be self-controlled. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Let's go there for a moment. This is that same passage I read earlier about um, them thinking it's strange that you don't pledge with them in the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you, etc., etc. And look at verse 7. And this was written 2,000 years ago or close to that. I'm, I'm just approximating. So if it was true for them then, think about what this says to us now. The end of all things is near. The end of all things. The end of the game. It's almost over. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Be clear-minded. Be self-controlled. You know, if we're, if we're really honest, I, I, I want you to know I really do never try to exaggerate, although sometimes I'm, I'm sure I have i'm sure i have but at the same time you know it's really how i see the world so i'm i'm really usually representing what i really think and see this world is out of control young men are not in control today young women are not in control today their passions are out of control their desires are out of control their behavior is out of control. And it's hurting people all around us. It's hurting people. People get hurt. God has a different standard for us. God wants us as young men and women, middle-aged men and women, He wants us to be self-controlled. To be in control of self. Let me put it in another way. A person who has their flesh under control. A person whose flesh does not rule them. But instead, you're a person who rules over your flesh. See, I want to share something with you, alright? And I try, to, I try to help this get through to you. When you're not doing what God wants you to do, most of you, most of us, I've been in the same situation, it feels pretty natural, doesn't it? It feels very natural not to be doing what God wants me to do. It feels very natural. Because at that moment, what's going on with you is this. You are under the control of the flesh. No, you're not living in freedom. You are being ruled and dominated by the worst Pharaoh in the world. Your flesh is a lot worse than any tyrant that has ever lived. Your flesh. What it forces upon you. What it causes you to do. What it makes you want to do. That's why, see the Bible tells us that the spirit wages war against the flesh and the flesh wages war against the spirit. And they are at enmity with one another. How many have ever felt that way? Like there's a war going on inside of you. Raise your hand really high. That's very good. You know the Lord. You know the Lord. And you're trying to do what God wants you to do. And that's going to go on for the rest of your life. Exciting, isn't it? That's why Paul says in, in Corinthians, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Because if you don't make your body your slave, your body will make you its slave. You know, we we hear this stuff all the time, you know, that sex is a... Uh, You know, I mean, illicit sex, immorality is a disease and and it's genetic, adultery is genetically passed on to you, alcoholism is genetically passed on to you, the list goes on and on, drug abuse, etc., etc. And there are certainly some truths that, that you may be inclined, depending on your environment that you grew up in, to do certain behaviors. But let me tell you this, the flesh, the flesh will do all that it can, period to make you its slave. And the only person who can ever break the bondage of that flesh and begin giving you a new lease on life is Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you when you come to Christ. So you have to make a choice basically as Bob Dylan during his spiritual days which I guess have passed when he said you got to serve somebody. You may be a preacher you may be a doctor you may be a lawyer you may but you're going to have to serve somebody and it may be the devil it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody let me tell you something brother sister that's the truth the flesh the world out there they're not free they are slaves to the devil and to the flesh but as Christians when we come to Christ and we live in subjection when we live in slavery to God we're actually free That's the dichotomy of the kingdom. Slaves to God, but you're free. Free from the bondage of all that is destroying mankind. So it's essential that we become people who are self-controlled. Who have our body under control, our passions under control, our mind under control. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. I can't this morning. I've talked about it many times before. But it's all going to start with your mind. Brother and sister, you've got to discipline your mind for the purpose of godliness. You must. You must gain control over your thoughts. You must fight that fight to win out. Because if you don't, well, thoughts determine actions. And Proverbs says, As a man thinks within himself, so is he. And so as you just, you know, sometimes we just think thoughts are so innocent. Thoughts really are more dangerous than actions. If someone would have stopped Hitler's ideas from being propagated when they were ideas, then you would have never had Hitler's deeds after the ideas had gained acceptance. And the same is true in your own life. You must win out. Now, is it going to be a fight? Absolutely. Is it going to be difficult and challenging? Absolutely. Is it impossible? No. No. It's just that we give up. It's just that we decide sometimes, I don't want to keep fighting. Well, we got to keep fighting. That's, again, why we get together, to encourage each other to keep fighting. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand when the day of evil comes, and it will come, and it will come in your life. Pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Put on the helmet of salvation. Cover your mind. Gird it. Feed on truth. Gird your loins with the belt of truth. I mean, we could go on and on and on. This is real serious business. And some of you may think to yourself, "Geez, Mark, I mean, I'm not in that much pain. It's not that tough." Then, then the devil's got you. He's deceived you. He's got you, and you'll stay useless and dormant for as long as you stay deluded. But when you see the light, you begin to realize, my goodness, I want to gain the upper hand on these lustful thoughts, on these covetous thoughts, on these negative thoughts, on these critical thoughts. I'm going to think differently. And you begin feeding your mind, feeding your mind. And then you begin to find that, wow, I, no, I'm not going to do that with my body. I'm not going to say that. And The second major area that God wants us to gain control of is our mouth. Our mouth. Oh, my, my. I've learned this the hard way. The mouth can be used for something so wonderful. The mouth also, in my view, in the view of the scriptures, is the most destructive weapon known to man. James tells us how great a fire is set ablaze by the tongue. By the tongue. The lips of the righteous feed many. The tongue of the of the of the wicked, the Bible says, is like the thrust of a sword. It just cuts, it jabs, it slices wherever, and it leaves people ble- bleeding. Some of you maybe uh, remember what it was like growing up in that kind of environment, where whatever parents felt like saying, siblings felt like saying, was said. You know about the most cruel place in the world. Uh, speaking you know, speech-wise, emotion-wise, is the elementary playgrounds in this country in junior high schools. Man, you want to be talked about getting sliced alive. You want to talk about the hurt and the pain that's caused from the thoughtless, mindless, foolish words that come out of young people. Just go hang around elementary playground. Find out. How many remember what that was like? What There you go, you remember. How many of you remember those coming out of your mouth? I remember. And it hurts. One simple verse, Proverbs 13, 3, couldn't be said much better in the Living Bible. Self-control means controlling the tongue. A quick retort can ruin everything. A quick retort can ruin everything. Oh, how many times I've learned this the hard way in marriage. I'd say that that's been one of the greatest challenges in my marriage, my relationship with my wife. I'm an extremely verbal person. And, you know, I was, I was sharing with a young person the other day on the phone who's um, having some difficulties in their marriage, and and um, it's really not all their fault. It's a very challenging situation. I was telling this young man, he, he said, Mark, what do I do? You know, sometimes I just, oh! I said, you know what you do? I said, the first thing you do is shut up what? I said, shut up. Let your wife say what she says and take it. And shut up. Or find out what kind of a man you are, what you're made of. Shut up. Don't walk out of the room. Don't turn around. Don't roll your eyes. Just shut up. There's been times literally that in my, my marriage I just, I'm biting down on my mouth to keep it from opening in, real, in real, uh, real volatile situations, I remember one time I was over with a couple, counseling them. And I said, all right, here's what I want you to do. Here's the game plan. It's pretty obvious that you guys have gone down this path an awful long time, and you're used to just throwing out the words, man, like daggers. They said, yeah, that's us. And it had been a very volatile situation on both the part of the, the husband and the wife. I said, all right, what I want you to do, what I want you to do, here's the, here's the game plan in the future. When you, when you know that you're getting angry, I want you to be honest. First, be honest. And I want you to say to him, you know what? I'm getting angry right now. I'm getting upset. And then you can tell yourself, I know I'm going to say something I regret. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to walk out of this room. I want you to tell your spouse, look, I'll be back. i got to go cool down. And I want you to put your hand on the door I want you to walk out of this apartment I want you to go for a walk. I want you to calm down. I want you to come back. The Bible says a wise man holds his anger in and calms it. Now, you may not be that far gone, but let me tell you this. You're going to have to learn how to shut up. How to just close your mouth. You cl- Just kind of open your mouth. Close, <laughs> close your lips. And open your ears. And listen. And try to find something you can understand through all that's being spewed at you. And then think before you speak. But many of us would grow immensely in self-control, the mouth, if we just learned to shut up. Just turn off the flow. Just quit talking so much. Learn to listen. What do other people have to say? Some of you, you know, you, you see me on the stage, you go, you know, all Martin does this talk. But if you've ever called me on the phone... You know that there's times I'll just sit for an hour and listen. And listen to what it is you're saying, what it is you're sharing. Try to assess the situation, digest it, take it in. Think about how can I help? How should I respond? How can I give uh, you know, uh, wisdom and discernment to that individual? And then I might take the next ten minutes sharing back with you what you just took an hour to share. even I realize you've got to listen if you want to understand people you've got to listen but as a younger man I'll just be really honest with you um, I'm not proud of this now that I think back I think about how stupid I really was but I never had time to listen because I always had something exciting to tell everybody and I thought it was the most important thing they needed to hear I mean it's really true and I just talk and 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 often it wasn't just bad stuff, it was just too much stuff. And I was the kind of person you'd have in your small group that, to be honest, you didn't want. Because, you know, I, I just knew no one in the room could possibly have as much good to say as I do. That's a little arrogance too, wouldn't you say? And so, and so I'm just going to make sure, you know, that before anyone else gets, a, gets something in here, or, uh, you know, I'm going to say something. We've got to learn to control our mouth. And we've got to learn to have uh, good things come out of our mouth. Now, one way to do that is, is, the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you've got to choose what you fill your heart up with. If you fill your heart up with garbage and wickedness and all that, it'll it'll come out in any way. It can come out at any time anyway, whether you're filling it with, with truth or not. Just because the flesh is just bad, period. It's going from bad to worse, and you can't do anything to stop that. But one of the things you can do to minimize it is to fill your heart with truth, with righteousness, so that good things come out of your mind. And think good things. But we've got to learn to control our mouth. Many of us in this room could have uh, God do something extraordinary with our life if we just learn to control our mouth. What time is this supposed to be done? Ten minutes? Okay. Uh, the third thing. Patience towards life and towards others. We must develop patience towards life and towards others. Ephesians 4.2 says, bearing patiently with one another. Colossians 1.12 you go back there for a moment. It says, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it's 111, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so you might have great endurance and patience. And 1 Peter, go there for just a moment. I'll tell you the chapter in just a second. 1 Peter 2, In verse 18. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin, no, was no deceit found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threat. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds. You have been healed. Notice there that we have been called to be insulted. We have been called to take advantage of. We have been called to suffer in that manner. We have been called to endure life with patience. Great patience and great endurance. We aren't quitters. Quitters are not walking worthy of the kingdom. Quitters are not walking worthy of God. We are to be people who show patience towards life and towards others. When things come along our way, then we've got to accept them. When God's allowed them to come into our life, then sure there'll be a struggle. There's a struggle for me. There'll be a struggle for you. We want to resist the pain. We want to resist the trial. We want to get angry and upset and make it disappear. So yes, you'll have to wrestle with that, but we must come to the conclusion... The sooner the better, but when you're younger, it takes a little longer. That, hey, this is what God allowed. It's painful. It hurts. But I'm going to accept it, and I'm going to endure it, and I'm going to get to the other side of it. I'm not going to run from it. Let me tell you a secret about trials. Most of them in your life, you can get out of. Most of the trials in my life, I could get out of. I could just quit. I could just walk away from what I know it is God wants me to do and what God has me involved and I could just go forget it all and I'd be out of the trial. God wants to have endurance. He wants us to endure the situation so that he can get the glory from it that he intended. That's how God gets the glory talking to another person this morning who came up to me and said, Mark, I was in your trial seminar. And I was thinking when you first started, gee, I don't have many right now. Everything's going kind of smooth. But all of a sudden, about a week later, it'll happen. I'm a jinx to you and I'm sorry. You come to those seminars and it'll always happen because God will go good. Now they're at a teachable point in their life. This is a teachable moment. Here's a trial. Try it on for size. And God will do that. He, He does it to me too. Sometimes that's why I get a little afraid to even share things. Because I know, doggone it, I say this, it's going to come back on me. And this person was sharing with me, you know, but all of a sudden I started having these trials at work. And you know, they, they're hard and they bother me, but I knew God wants me to accept these. God wants me to be thankful for them. God wants me to do them with patience. And all of a sudden, my workmates start asking me, wow, how are you handling this? How can you deal with this? And they just said, that was a ch- an opportunity, see, to speak up, to stand up and be counted and say, well, you know, the Lord's just helping me. I know that He's got a plan and that God will work it out. Wow, does that ever blow the, the world's mind? Because you know what they do? They'd be ranting and raving and just be, you know, ludicrous that something like this was happening to them. But you just acknowledge that God, a personal God, is involved in your life and has plans for you, you see. That's why it's so important that you endure. That's why it's so important that you handle it with patience. You're going to be wronged. I hope you realize that. That is your destiny. Now, now I admit, that's one of the hardest, that's maybe the hardest thing in the world. To be wronged when you mean so much good towards others. To be wronged when all you did, as far as you can understand, was love other people and try to look out for them. To be wronged, that's that's really, really hard. I was talking to a brother recently who took an, another job at another company. And um, so I was I was in visiting him the other day. Stopped in and said, how you doing? He said, well, I was doing great until the other day. I found out that my workmates are accusing me of stealing stuff, tools, from the company that I left. And I I know this brother, he would never, ever do such a thing. Boy, that hurts, doesn't it? When employees are saying things about you, fellow employees, when employers are making up lies about you, join the club. Let's form a support group together. It isn't fun. It hurts a lot. Jesus understands. The same things happen to him. And he didn't retaliate. He endured it with patience. Let me share what this means when I say a patient towards life and towards others. Oh, wait a minute. What, what did I do here? Mark. My goodness. Okay, let's put that down. I'm mixing my own self up with these extraordinary notes. <laughs> okay. Uh, worthy in our speech. That's what I wanted to talk about now, and I don't have much time to do it, so I'm going to have to do it fast. So you you can uh, write down Ephesians 4.29. It says that no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word is good to meet the need of the moment, that it might give grace to those who hear. And Philippians, if you go there for a moment, I do want you to see this. Chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that they, excuse me, so that you may become pure and blameless, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So I wrote down these comments. And I'm going to have to develop these a little, least. I'm sorry. I got this is real important. I've got to cover this. Okay, so wake we'll it up some other way. Okay? We should not be whiners and grumblers and people who like to argue. We should not be whiners and grumblers and people who like to argue. I have a dear friend, good brother, growing. Lord's been, I'm just so proud of this young man. God's taught him a lot in the last five years. I've known him about five years, but when I first met this young man, this young man was pretty self centered. Quined a lot. One of the things to be his way all the time. And I'm um, one time, this, I, I've, I've never done this before, but I knew this young man and I knew he could take it and I knew it would be good for him. He called me one time on the phone. I said, Mark, how come you didn't return my call the same day I called you? And, you know, I had tried, but I also knew I'd see him the next night and he had left on the message that, you know, call me when you get a chance, it's nothing pressing. I said, man, I don't do business that way. And he went on and on and on. And I said, I said to him after he got done, I said, you know, you are a baby. Do you think the world revolves around you? Well, you know, I've watched this young man grow in, into just, he's just a tremendous young man. But on his job, God has been using this quality. You know, things, uh, they change the rules on your jobs, don't they? It's, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? They change the game. They change the rules. Oh, your commission will be this much. Nah, now nah, now nah, we're going to make your quota higher. Wait, wait a minute, I thought you said it was going to be... Well, now we changed our mind. And he'd call me on the phone, you know, and he'd be telling me, oh, this and that and the other thing, and on and on and on and it would go. And I say, listen, brother, listen. God changed the game. God changed the game on you. He's working in your heart. He's working on your life. And it's just been amazing to me to watch this individual just blossom. And they called up, this same person called up after about six months at the company, said, oh my goodness, Mark, this is so unfair, I can't take it, i got to get a new job. I said, you need to stay. Well, I called to get your advice, I just gave you my advice, you need to stay you got to quit running. You can't spend the rest of your life running from injustice and the pain and the hurt. you got to stay in the frying pan. God is working on your heart. And I promise you that in a couple years you'll thank me. And you'll be making a lot of money. They stayed. And both those things happened. And God's been do- just I've just been doing some amazing things in this person's life. All of us. We have to grow the same way. Whining comes as natural to me as breathing. I I just admit that. I just confess that. I am far more negative by nature than any of you could possibly imagine. Negativity, you know, is is genetically encoded in my flesh. I have a... There's a few people I've known in the world. Three, actually. Maybe more. If I I fail to mention your name, it's just because I don't know you well enough. Actually, maybe there's five. There's Julie Norling, who's now Julie Jones, Nikki Patterson, Maria Sahunka, my daughter Jessica, and Jonna. Some of you know Jonna? Oh, how are you guys? How are you doing? You know, just like, they're just Miss Bubbly all the time. I am not that way. My flesh is just negative. Life stinks. Do you know, And I always see the bad. They're just sunshine in your day. You know, my little daughter Jessica is just like sunshine. Just walks in the room, you can say something hard to her, and she just, oh, I love you, Daddy. <laughs> it reminds me of God, really, sort of reminds me of It's just wonderful. She just smiles, you know. There's a few rare people, you know, that God... God's put on the earth that way. Donna reminds me of that, Donna Wilcox. is always smiling all the time. You know, those things don't come... I'm not saying they come natural to me. I'm not saying they don't, these folks don't have to obey God. I'm not saying that. But God doesn't want us to be whiners. And I really have to fight that. God doesn't want us to be complainers. I really have to fight that. I would say, in fact, that that may be one of the things my wife reminds me of the most. Mark, stop complaining. The other day I called her on the phone, and I call. I call every day. I, I I use these little phone cards, and I call and I call and I call. You know, I'm kind of obsessed about my family. So two or three times a day when I'm gone, I will usually talk to them. So my wife said, "Yeah, Mark, I walked into Bally's the other day, and the girl asked me again where our money was. You know that we're we're overdue. And I said. So here's me, you know. Immediate problem solving, immediate boom. Because this happened to me the other day when I walked in. And I looked right back at the girl and I said, listen. I said, I don't owe you money. If Bally's has a problem, it's Bally's problem. See, because they took a void check of mine and they've been withdrawing money from my account for a year and a half. If they didn't withdraw it there this time, I'm sorry. Go talk to your accountant. So I didn't say it exactly like that, you know. I did <laughs> I said, hey, you know, um, we have an automatic withdrawal. You better talk to them because, you know, I don't write a check to Bally's ever. So my wife went in again the other day, and the girl said, now look, now you're two months past, doing. If you don't pass, you can't come in here anymore. And I'm on the other line of the phone. I said, this is unbelievable. Kathy, what did you say to her? See, because I, Kathy's so sweet, and she'll just stand there, you know. And, and I said, did you look her back in the eye and tell her if they got a problem? It's Bally's problem. And to get their act together... Their accounting system just like all the equipment in here. It never works. Do <laughs> you know? It's like... Gee, that's just so natural to me. It's just... And so uh, Kathy goes, You know, Mark, I was in your seminar on trials last week, and I wrote down these notes. About... That's exactly what she did. I just wanted to hang up the phone on her, man. It's like, would you give me a break? This is serious, okay? These people are messing with us. So, so she said, well, they gave me this number. It wasn't even an 800 number, Martin, California, and I had to call them and straighten out. You mean we had to pay for the call? said, yeah, and they told me I had to write out two checks plus a third check and void it out. Because we had to start the whole process over again. I said, well, when I get home, I'm going to call them on the phone. I said, did you get it straight? Mark, I straightened it out. No, you wait. When I get home, I'll get it straightened out. <laughs> One thing that really does get my dandruffs injustice. I don't like it. It bugs me. And I don't mind, you know, the machines broken once in a while. I just don't like someone... Calling me a liar, saying I didn't pay someone, I didn't pay. That was what was bothering me. But I should have said, you know, well, sweetheart, what do you think we should do about this situation? <laughs> Which is totally unnatural to me. <laughs> or you know, I could have at least said, um, well, honey, what'd you say? Now, just see, I gotta, I really have to consciously tell myself, Mark, just stay, stay calm here, okay? We, we can handle this. So, what'd you say, honey? What happened? Oh, well, I wrote him out two checks and the third check boy and got to start process started all over again. And then I should have said, "Well, great. Way to handle the problem, Kathy. Good job." <laughs> no, I had you know, I got to go on and on and on. See? So some of you maybe are more like I am, some of you, you know, can't relate to that at all, and that's okay. The point is is we shouldn't be those kind of people. And I have to say it's it's not my habit. It does come out. It's something I struggle with, but I I strive very hard to be a positive individual Um, another one's argumentative I gotta say that's been another probably the second biggest challenge in my marriage I grew up in a family you know we just arguing was sport to us I mean I I love my mom and dad I was the oldest of six siblings and we'd sit around the kitchen and we'd argue we'd argue what was the best football team we'd argue who was the best fighter we'd argue politics we'd argue my skills were honed you know, at the dinner table. You know, how many of you had that kind of situation going? You know? There you go, you know, and, and so I got married. And oh my goodness Do we argue? And you know my wife, bless her heart, she's tough as nails. a lot of people don't realize that about Kathy. A girl's tough. She's a lot more choleric than anybody realizes. Cleric means strong and opinionated. So am I. That's like putting, you know, oil and gas together or gas and a match together is like what it's doing, you know. And so I just had to learn, look, Mark, God, I don't want you to argue. Just shut your mouth, listen. Let's try to find some common ground here. Try to find out what's being said and how you can build in this situation. Number two, Get rid of gossip and slander. I want to relate a situation to you. This is a very serious situation. I mean, this, this truth is serious. This situation... I think it happened. I can't verify it. But, but I want to tell you, I, I'm pretty sure that this happened. And uh, it was a situation someone called me about a few weeks ago. They said, you know, Mark, I was going into the bathroom at Evergreen. Walked into the women. This was the women's bathroom. This was a gal. Okay, I just want to make that really clear. I walked into the women's bathroom and I overheard these three or four women. They were talking about some other other people. At the same time, I was in there, not in a very good way, in a very good light at all. They happen to be singles, by the way. I and marrieds can do the same thing. And this new person walked into the bathroom, walked out with me, and said, "Man, you know what? If this is the kind of church this is, I don't want any part of it." Gossip and slander. That shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't be happening, brother and sister. If you, if you have a problem with another individual, number one, if you have a problem or a disagreement and you're not sure how to handle it, talk to your leader. Because they can help be part of the solution. And that's the issue here. Don't be going and talking to all your friends. You know what? They did this and they did it. You see so and so? You see what they're doing? We have the slyest ways to gossip and slander, you know. Sometimes it doesn't come out very venomous. We can just say, "You know, I was just wanting to get your thoughts about something, you know. So-and-so, I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? It seems pretty off to me. Or slanderous things. You know, the Bible says get rid of all slander and gossip. Get rid of it. We should be people who guard one another's reputations. And if you think that something that you've heard or that that you've seen that person's true about them, then go to them lovingly and say to them, Hey, I want to help you. I love you. We were meant to guard each other's back, not stab each other's back. Okay? We guard each other, one, by defending each other's reputation. Two, we guard each other's back by going and speaking the truth to each other in love if we need to do that. If we've offended someone or hurt someone, you know, maybe we don't know it. I would love for someone to come to me and say, Mark, you know, so-and-so's feelings got hurt. Wow, what can I do to make it right? Should I go to them? Well, no, because then they know I told you and I wasn't supposed to tell you, but I just wanted you to know. So then I'll usually formulate a little plan with them and say, Well, listen, would you go to them and say, Listen, I'd be glad to meet with you with Mark. Or listen, Mark's really didn't mean that. Or he's really a nice guy. He'd love to visit with you. Try somehow to get it right. Because I don't want there to be a foothold by the devil. We need to guard what comes out of our mouth. We need to even guard beforehand what we're thinking in our mind about each other. We need to believe the best about each other. We really need to believe the best about each other. Now I remember a situation some time ago, this has been several years ago, young man, young woman, they were engaged to be married and they lived in this, uh, the gal had this apartment owned by a Christian in another church. And the guy's pickup there was usually there till one or two or three in the morning. And I was involved with this couple at the time. I was gonna be the one who was gonna marry them. So this individual called our church office, wanted to talk to one of the pastors, and said, Listen, I you know, I see this young man's truck there till two or three in the morning, and I'm really concerned. They both claim to be Christians. She says she's a Christian, I'm concerned they're sleeping together. Well, you know, of course we got no eyewitnesses here. This person's probably making though a pretty, pretty fair good assumption once you've lived long enough to understand what it's like to be in love and have hormones kicking on and understand what you're thinking about when it's 1 or 2 in the morning. So, you know, I had the wonderful duty of responsibility to to bring it up to them. So we went out to lunch one day. We were talking about their their upcoming wedding. and I said, well, listen, there's something I wanted to ask you about. I said, uh, you know, I got a call recently from your landlord. And uh, he knows the Lord, he loves you, thinks very highly of you. But he's been a little concerned that he sees, you know, your fiancé's truck here till two or three in the mornings, occasionally all night. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a little concerned about your reputation. He called up about that, about your testimony. That, you know, it, it, it certainly has the appearance of evil. And, you know, the chances are maybe you're sleeping together. And So I wanted to follow it and track it down and see how I could help. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, it does. I guess it does. We never thought about it. So, well, it's a good thing to think about. I'm here to guard your back. I'm not here to judge you hurt you. I'm here to help you. So the first thing is, um, are you sleeping together? Well, no, actually, I've just been sleeping on the couch. I get off really late from work. It's the only time I can see her. So I go and visit and Then I just go to sleep on the couch, get up and go to work. Well, you know, I can't call him a liar, can I? You know, I look in him in the eye and go, yeah, right. Oh, sure, I've heard that before. So I said, well, you know, um, let me give you some advice, all right? The Bible tells us not to put a stumbling block in anyone's way. It says that in Romans. So look out for our brothers and sisters and your landlord's brothers and sisters. Secondly, it tells us to be a, a good testimony to the world around us that's watching us. So I'd like to give you a little advice. I think it'd be a real good idea if you're no longer there past 11 o'clock. Furthermore, I would strongly advise you not to be there late at night at all, because um, sex usually happens late at night. When you're tired, when you're not on your toes, when you're alone, and your love, and... we'll, we'll get to that sex stuff tonight, okay? I don't want to get into that right now. Alright. So, in other words, I didn't go out and talk to everybody else about it. I went to them and talked to them about it. So if you have a concern, guard your brother's sister's back. Go to them lovingly. Not with an assuming, arrogant, judgmental attitude, but with a loving attitude. A spirit to help them say, you know, I don't know for sure if this is what you were thinking or not or if this is what you meant or if this is what's going on but I love you and I just want to share it with you. Are you known for your kind, righteous and uplifting speech? at work, at home, at church, at your small group. What are you known for? Ask yourself that question. Maybe you go up. I'll tell you what I do periodically, and I really do, I do this. I really don't trust my own judgment. You know, people will come up, people ask me, Mark, oh, how was the conference out in so-and-so? I, you know, I mean, I think it was good. I think the Lord blessed that. I don't want to disrespect the Lord. But, you know, I... I don't know, is it extraordinary? I don't know. I don't know. I regularly ask my wife and I regularly ask my children, particularly them, but I ask guys like Doug, I ask guys like Greg, guys that I'm around fairly often. And is there something you see in me that if you you could tell me, now would be a chance to tell me that, that you think should change or, or that you think's hurtful or that you think's is bothersome or... My son and I had a long visit about this recently. There's something I could tell that was coming between my son and I, my oldest son. And, uh, you know.